All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you here from New York City on the 18th day of April, 2017. Before uh, I talk to you a little bit about today's show, let me remind you once again that I am the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and that you can subscribe to my letter by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. Or you can call our office in New York during normal work hours, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Also like to encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And you can do that by going to chenpix.com, chenpix.com. Chen turned $5,400 of, uh, uh, of an IRA back in 2003 into $2.5 in 10 years, so... His track record speaks for itself. Uh, a good friend of mine, we do, we still do business together, but I like to put in a little plug for Chen Lin from time to time, chenpicks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Dynasert Inc., Chilean Metals, Arvista Gold Corp., TriMetals Mining, Telson Resources, RN Resources, Novo Resources, and Uranium Energy Corp. I've titled today's show, Why You Can Bet Against Rising Interest Rates. Well, Michael Oliver, author of Momentum Structural Analysis, John Rubino, proprietor of DollarCollapse.com, and Patrick Cruikshank of Chilean Metals will be with me today, all return guests. And Brian London, who's been with me in the past, uh, he is the author of Gold Newsletter, is my guest today on my newly formed Top Stock Picks podcast which you can listen to at jtaylormedia.com as soon as you're finishing listening to this show, which will be over at 4 o'clock Eastern Time. In a pre-recorded interview I did yesterday with Brian, he talked about three companies, two of which are among my own favorites, uh, and they are also sponsors of this show, and I'm talking about RN Resources and our Vista Gold. Uh, please do yourself a favor and listen to what Brian had to say about those two companies as well as a third company that he's picked recently and added to his newsletter called Tower Resources. In a few minutes, Patrick Cruikshank will tell us of the plans of Chilean metals to find, well, they're in the hunt for a world-class iron oxide copper gold deposit in Chile and Nova Scotia. And this is a company that already has a major royalty that should begin providing cash flows to Chilean metals in the fairly near future. Uh, we'll have to ask uh, Patrick about that, where how soon they'll be coming on. But in my view, that royalty alone probably more than justifies the current market cap of this company. So we'll we'll hear what Patrick has to say after a first commercial break. And as I just noted, 
I titled today's show, Why You Can Bet Against Rising Interest Rates. And I gave this show that title because of an article that my main guest, John Rubino, wrote recently in which he pointed out that rates can't rise because if they do, it will bring about an economic devastation far greater than what our parents and grandparents experienced in the 1930s. Indeed, I will ask John about the evidence that policymakers are already using smoke and mirrors to try to keep people confident that the Federal Reserve has control of the economy and and to keep interest rates suppressed uh, so as not to spook the masses uh, out of fiat money into gold. Well, for example, I, I want to ask John also about a huge amount of U.S. Treasury purchases by a mystery buyer that the Treasury Department simply labels other. And we're, it's a major piece of the puzzle, and we don't know who that other is, but we'll want to get John's ideas on, on what might be going on there. But when we say the Fed can't raise rates, we put the word can't in quotes because there are laws of nature that cannot be defied by politicians and central bankers posing as gods. Longer term, Mother Nature will prevail. And to help us keep our feet on the ground, I'm really pleased to say hello once again to my good friend, Michael Oliver, who is with us live this week. He won't be on top stock picks because we're managing to get him to come on live. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Great to be here, Jay. Oh, it's always so good to talk to you, Michael. And last week on my top stock picks, you were on there, and you you suggested that maybe gold bugs would do better to pay close attention to the dollar rather than to gold itself. Gold will take care of itself. You didn't seem to be too worried about the downside risks for gold, but you figured that the real upside push on gold and other precious metals and probably commodities in, in general, I guess, will come when the dollar sees a decline. What are your thoughts today on the dollar? I see it is somewhat weaker today, Michael. Yeah, it's, uh, I think the last time we spoke, it was it had rallied from a traded low for the year, just below 99, spent like two hours down there, that'd be in March, I think it was, and scooted back up to 101.50. We're talking about the dollar index now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we did, did that interview, I think the dollar was up in that area. Oh, it's now back down to 99 and a half. I uh, can't seem to stay clear of our number. We've had this number late last year, 99, and we, we said mm-hmm. the dollar index closes, the cash index closes 99 or lower any month, monthly close, not daily. Uh, so far, we haven't even had a daily close there. Uh, it's, it's broken its major uptrend, and uh, I'm measuring that on annual momentum, not on a price chart. Mm-hmm. And it toys with the number, toyed with it in February, toyed with it in March, and it keeps trying to hot-foot it off of it like, oh, I can't do that. It seems to know <laughs> that our number is valid, and now it's headed back down there again. Sure enough, gold has uh, made new recent highs, uh, and uh, we've gotten up at the high 1290. Somebody just in front of 1300 did some selling, but uh, it hasn't really backed off that much, uh, while the dollar has dropped a couple points in the last week or so. So again, I'm watching 99. If I see a monthly close there or lower, we go major negative. If I see a trade to 98, we go major negative without waiting for a monthly close. And I uh-huh. think that will provide a lot of impetus to a lot of markets to do a lot of different things. And in the case of gold and silver, um, they've done a lot of upside over the last uh, year, and a, year and a quarter since early 2016 without any help from the dollar. Right. No weakness right. from the dollar, just sideways. Uh, imagine if the dollar gets weak. Uh, yeah. the, the gradient of the rise of gold and silver should increase markedly, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, we heard the president last week uh, suggest that he wants to see a weaker dollar, and by gosh, the dollar went a lot lower on that news, on that, on that uh, tweet, 
mm-hmm. or whatever it was from the president. So uh, clearly, there are some people that are cheering for a lower for a lower dollar. Of course, uh, as as you and I know, the market forces will ultimately prevail. Well, Michael, the big question on our show today is, can Treasury rates go down? John Rubino is going to argue that policymakers will do everything possible within, within, their, uh, within their ability to suppress Treasuries, uh, or to suppress, suppress interest rates because of the massive amounts of debt that is growing ex- exponentially. And if rates were to rise anywhere near what they were historically, John argues that the world would be not only a hurt of pain, but probably a devastating depression. So yeah, I, what are you seeing in the Treasury markets right now? Well, what we saw last October, and we, we monitor Treasury bond futures, it's 30-year debt, okay? Uh, they were up in the 170s, 160s, and at 166, we went major, major negative. Annual momentum trend broke down. Mm-hmm. They subsequently dropped from a price of 166 down to a low recently of 147, near 147, so a fairly sizable drop. That converted mm-hmm. to a yield rise of about 1%. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we felt uh, all during the last few months, while the bonds have been more or less congesting down here, that a sharp counter-trend rally would occur, and that's underway right now. We're up 155 plus, so we're about almost eight points off the low. Mm-hmm. We think it's got several more points to go and uh, possibly hang around up here for a while. Mm-hmm. This is counter-trend, meaning this rally it was definable, but it is not the real trend. The real trend, I think, is down, meaning higher rates, lower prices, higher rates. But this rally needed to occur as a correction, an upside correction in a fresh downtrend. Uh, I think the point of panic among those who are watching interest rates will occur once this rally uh, dip in rates, uh, especially visible in the German bonds and in the U.S. government bonds. Not Mm -hmm. so visible, for example, in the Italian bonds, which aren't dipping. Their yields are staying firm. I think the point of panic occurs once we have this rally, it ends, we roll over and T-bonds take out the low they made uh, last month, which is down on the 147s. So, you know, you might get up to 157, let's say, just argument's sake. We go another mm-hmm. few points. Uh, and then let's say a month later we roll back through that low. I think at that point most market watchers will then say, ooh, this is a little bit more than we thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been very comfortable with the rise in rates so far because it's been modest. Right. But if you go back through that low after having had this corrective rally, then that downtrend in bonds is going to pick up speed, and we think you could take long-term yields, which had their lowest reading on T-bonds at 2.11% back in 2016, could mm-hmm. go up to 4.25%. Wow. Uh, and uh, that would be you know something that could even happen this year, assuming you go through that low that we made in March. Uh, sometime in the next month or two, I think if you do that, then you're going to have a horrendous another leg down in bonds, and you'll jerk yields up uh, another full percentage point to that wow. four and a quarter. So that should be disturbing. Uh, that uh, will be very disturbing. I will certainly ask John Rubino when we talk to him later what he thinks a four and a quarter rate would do. Uh, but certainly, you know, we're not used to those kind of rates, are we, Michael? And it's uh, no, no, it's been a it's long time. To, and uh, it's going to uh, and this roar. again, this has nothing to do with. Uh, uh, the academics who run the central banks, okay? Yeah. This is out of their hands at this point. And, right. Uh, once that that falls away, the, the curtain gets pulled back on the Wizard of Oz, and you see who's mm-hmm. back there mm-hmm. and is impotent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's, that's a factor that's psychological. Forget mm-hmm. the markets. It's just, it's just the psychological thought that, my gosh, they're not in charge. 
as if they ever well, really were anyway. Well, I, I have <laughs> to think, you know, we're going to be talking to John Rubino about this mystery buyer at the Treasury, and it certainly would seem as though they are trying to hide behind the curtain now. Uh, because right. uh, clearly they don't want to name who that other buyer is of treasuries, and it's a huge buyer. So uh-huh. we're going to ask John about that. It's very interesting, but, uh, you know, trying to fool Mother Nature, that's what the politicians try to do. They try to play God as if they can do all kinds of miraculous things for in exchange for votes, right? So well, ultimately, you and I know. Uh, fails, especially among investors. Uh, you'll have a, a lot of belief structures and, and connectivities will fail. A tsunami to the downside, I dare say, I fear. Uh, But that's the way it is, and we have to call it as we see it. Thank you so much, Michael, for being with us once again. Always great to have you with us. Okay, thank you very much. Well, folks, don't go away because Patrick Cookshank will be here with us to talk about Chilean metals. Their their intention to uh, go out and find the next major IOCG deposit. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Patrick Cookshank. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asenko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over two. $200 million. Chilean Metals is a Canadian junior exploration company focusing on high potential copper, gold prospects in Chile and Canada. Chilean Metals Zulima property is a Candelaria like prospect, one of the largest mines in the world. The company has begun its drill program in Chile on its Zulima property and should be completed by the end of February. We also own a 3% royalty on future production on Tech Resources Copa Query property, potentially worth millions of dollars annually. This is the time to invest in Chilean metals, a discovery story with a hedge. Traded TSX Venture under symbol CMX. Telson Resources is building a new gold mine in Durango State that is destined to become one of the highest-grade gold producers in Mexico. Telson plans to commence production in early 2018 to mine over 1,000 tons per day by the end of the first year. Telson presents an exciting opportunity to investors seeking to position themselves in an exciting and robust new undervalued gold mine opportunity. Telson Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol TSN and on the OTCBB under symbol SOHFF. TriMetals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company exploring and developing its near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. TriMetals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a gold resource with a robust preliminary economic assessment. TriMetals believes that with further drilling, there is a significant potential to discover 3 to 5 million ounces of gold at Gold Springs. TriMetals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively, and its website is TriMetalsMining.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. 
If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Patrick Cruikshank. He is the CEO of Chilean Metals, um, and uh, he's he's back here with me again today. Um, we talked to him, I don't know, several, several months ago, I guess it was. It seems like a long time ago anyway, uh, but the company has had some developments since then we want to talk to him about. It trades uh, in Toronto under the symbol CMX. You can buy it down here in the States, as I have under the symbol CMETF. 75.2 million shares outstanding, uh, trading at 17.5 cents in Canadian money, uh, down from its high of around 30 cents earlier this year. And we'll ask uh, Patrick uh, why the, the price declined, because it certainly doesn't seem to be on the basis of anything that's occurred fundamentally. Uh, but this is a very small cap company, and uh, small cap companies can be very volatile. It's got a market cap of something around... Uh, 13 million in Canadian money, uh, less than 10 million in U.S. money. So it's a, it's a, it's a baby company, but with big dreams and and some, I think, real possibilities. Thank you for joining me again, uh, Patrick. Thank you very much for having me again, Jay. Yeah, you were saying uh, before we went on the air that uh, the stock was selling at around 30 cents before the, uh, the before the PDAC this year. Um, what uh, and then it got tanked. It got hit real hard on a very small number of shares. Talk to us a little bit about what you think happened there, because I don't. You know, I'm looking over the press releases uh, since then. I don't see that there's anything negative that would cause that. Yeah, it was a, a bit of a surprise for us too, uh, Jay. Uh, we had come on your show prior to PDAC convention in Toronto in early March, mm-hmm. and uh, we were in the midst of a drill program. We had just begun, and uh, Unfortunately, we had the press release um, some some uh, findings real early in the drill program. Normally, you wait till the end of the drill program and, and analyze it and, and get all your interpretation, then come to the market with your full press release and your findings and results. But because of PDAC comes once a year and it's the world's largest convention uh, for mining, we wanted to have conversations with majors and, and talk mm-hmm. to folks about our story and everything. So. Primarily, we had to do an early press release after, I think, only two holes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and unfortunately, like you said, out of 75 million shares, I think uh, uh, about three or 400,000 shares traded us down about 50%. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you said, I mean, we, we have a large uh, market uh, share issuance, like a lot of juniors, but uh, it's, the market can be affected by... Two three hundred thousand shares, which is not a lot of money. Right. You well, know? I think I can see. I, I I think I can see what happened here, Patrick. In my view, at least, and tell me if I'm wrong. A lot of times, you know, in these in these penny stocks, these lower price stocks, you got a lot of speculators, people who are out there betting on the first or the first or betting on a big major big economic intersection. And to a geologist, well, to anybody really, it's not likely to happen. It's not likely the first couple of holes are going to be are going to prove you have a mine. I mean, it never it's never going to happen. In fact, but uh, sometimes when, for example, when I saw this uh, press release, two two meters grading one point one eight nine percent copper and one gram of just about one gram of gold, I said, well, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good start. Um, 
But talk to us a little bit about that because I think that, you know, that's not an economic number unless you have larger intersections or a lot more of that sort of, you know, in the right dimensions and so forth. Correct. But what do you, th- what do you think that is just the speculators that aren't really longer-term players who see something like that and they just jump out? Yeah, so let me start with just talking about the science of our drill program. So because sure. we are exploring IOCG style deposits, these are massive, huge open pit mine type deposits. Let me give you an example. Olympic Dam in Australia, 100 billion, I think it was 1 billion tons of copper, 100 million ounces of gold. That's the size of these deposits. Now, Candelaria, which we believe were a, a copy or a, uh, a sister to that, potentially, you know, they've been mining for 25 years, and after 25 years, Lundin Mining bought them for $1.8 billion, and they're, wow. I think, down about 800 meters now, still drilling hmm. and, and mining the copper and the gold. So with that style and size of a deposit, it's not a small vein we're going to and, and trying to find a small, rich gold deposit. Sure. So with that size, with our technical team, which has Minotaur Australia, one of the world's best, who founded uh, Prominent Hill and also Cloncurry in Australia, and there's a lot of correlations between Australia's desert and the desert, the Atacama Desert, and, and Chile. Mm-hmm. So when you dress this, it's a massive target. Our target we looked at was two square kilometers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you announce a 10-hole 10, 10 drill program, that's a pretty big uh, postage stamp that, you're, that you're, uh, you're drilling. So we took our first priority of our holes are the southeast corner of what we believe our target is, the southwest corner, the south, the northeast corner, and to give you some examples, the southeast and the southwest two holes, number one, number two, are over a kilometer apart, uh-huh. 100 meters. Yeah. And then the, the northeast corner is two kilometers north of the southeast corner. Uh-huh. And why we were so excited from a geological standpoint, and this is why the majors are interested, is we proved we're an ISG system, not a porphyry. We hit IOCG lenses on hole two. We, had, we have copper mineralization with gold, with the right host rock, the same as Candelaria, with the brescias, the scarns, the, the, the quartz veining. Uh, mineralization in the veining and also mineralization um, uh, in, the, in the host rock itself. Mm-hmm. Real surprising to us was was the, the scar, uh, the, the uh, case bar. Case bar in the holes tell you you're close to the intrusion. So after that, you know, methodical scientific uh, approach that our geo team takes for our drill program, we decided to take a break because the drill program gets ahead of the analysis. So we took a break right. about two weeks ago with our drill company and said, okay, stand down now for about three to four weeks. Let us catch up and analyze all the core, all the logs, look at the geology, look at the, the host rocks, start to decipher this, this uh, a jigsaw puzzle because this is a massive target. The last couple holes that we're going to re- return to are going to, we can talk about it later, but that is going to be, now specifically targeted at, let's find this intrusion. Now that we've proved there's a charge system, we found copper gold all the way up two kilometers north of our target. So we're, that mm-hmm. gives you that the system is that big, yeah. which is a huge thing for these majors and potential buyers to, to look at us and say, this is massive. 
okay, guys, now let's find the source. So okay. 10 holes was never to find a discovery. The 10 hole program was to confirm the IOCG system, which we have done. That is why we're so excited. So where is the source to the system? Is there one intrusion? Is there two? And, and the other thing we've analyzed from hole two and three, and this is in our press releases, it's telling us to go west as well. There may be multiple intrusions, mm. and, and an intrusion can be mineralized or not. So mm-hmm. this is a huge jigsaw puzzle. You know, not that it's that um, uh, secret. It's just uh, it's a big system, and it's not a small little vein you're looking for. And uh, we've been excited to have the system over two square kilometers, roughly at the same depth of the intersections, and uh, the geologists and, and the technical group right now is analyzing all that data, and then we'll resume for the last uh, little uh, stage, and then we'll announce everything again with a yeah. an analytical summary. But back to your question regarding the market and, and the way they viewed us, don't forget, we were at half a penny prior, <laughs> okay, okay yeah. about 16 months ago, and, and we've twice, if you look at our chart, have hit resistance at around 30 to 33 cents. Uh-huh. And that has always been with a financing coming out. Mm-hmm. Except for the second time at PDAC, and that don't forget how many people have 10x multiple gains in their position. Sure. So I can't speak for investors, but some people are taking gains. Some people always sell on news, period. I mean, there's all different reasons people sell. Um, there's only really one reason insiders purchase, as you know. Um, lots of people sell for different different reasons, but you, you know, um, we're, we we believe we are on sale. Obviously, because uh, I mean, we we talked before about just having that royalty alone is probably worth more than our market cap. That's the way I see it. That's 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 really the way I see it, Patrick. Well, and you don't uh, ever see a junior with a royalty especially with a major like tech and a big project like right next door to QB1. Uh, while we're on that topic, what, are, what is the sense in terms of, uh, of tech producing from that property? Is it any, any news on that front? There, there has been, and it came from tech. Uh, you know that they have extended their permitting in Chile. Uh, QB1, they have uh, officially announced in their financials that QB1 will run out of ore and they will close that part of the mine in 2019. Mm-hmm. They're on our property that they purchased to the public query right now doing work and they have to get it ready. So we're, you know, I can't say when, and, uh, yeah. and uh, we are very optimistic that, you know, that I've heard crazy numbers on, on closing this down environmentally and the cost to just stop mining there versus just, this is why people buy the uh, deposits around them. To continue sure. mining is much cheaper than and pushing it out another five to ten years. But you don't yeah. don't forget when 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 Chilean Metals sold the property, they had already discovered a hundred million tons of copper. But they obviously because of the cost at four thousand feet up in the Andes, as a, yeah, you know, uh, compared to what we pay down at the foothills where Zulima is, um, it's 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 a very deep pocket cost to do business up there, and, and, and we could have taken that to the next level to another uh, stage of drilling, but it's very expensive, and that's where the, the large majors uh, 
see what they do. And well, and so now they've got to do some infill drilling, get their grade up. I think they're terrible debt right now. They're down to like 0.2 copper grade in their QB1 yeah. mine. And they've gone from 400 million gross output to 300 to 200 to roughly 100. So they are running right. out of ore. So it's pretty, it seems pretty. They'll have to turn this on, is what we believe. Okay, so yeah, okay, very good. Well, getting back to your Zaluma, Zalema IOCG project in Chile that you were talking about earlier, uh, you are, I saw you are increasing your drill program to 3,000 meters, I believe. Is that right? Yes. Yes, we did. And then, and then, what, what Patrick? Uh, just your your approach here to this, then, as I understand it, is to do enough work to really attract a major to come in here and really spend the big bucks to to move something forward. Is that is that the way you're approaching your project down there? Yeah, we're so lucky. We have so many options, and because we have had success at defining uh, that we have a charge system, not just a system, um, and it is similar in every aspect to Candelaria. And we've actually, uh-huh. in the last two weeks, had our geology team over on Candelaria looking at their host rocks and their their core samples from the original drills. So um, we're very, very fortunate to have multiple options. One, the market is turning. It's early days, but it is turning. Capital is coming. Very bullish on copper as a global commodity right now by many economic advisors and countries. You know, there's the economic push uh, with the electrical and the copper in China. You've got the U.S. Trump potential um, uh, infrastructure program for 10 years, and you've got India, et cetera. So as the growth comes, you can't deliver synthetic copper and, and, and paper investments. Someone's got to deliver no. ore at some point. Right. So you can't build Correct. bridges without copper and, 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 and so on. So we're very, you know, we believe copper has a lot more, some people are saying 5 to $6 in the mm-hmm. middle of the, the next upcoming bull market. So with that, it changes the dynamic when you have a copper company and a, with gold, which is kind of, I look at it like it's free. It's a nice nice side uh, side profit formula. But um, we've got German interest. We've got interest now globally coming to us and saying, you know, we really like your, your company and what you're doing and, 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 and you've got this royalty. Would you like to sell your royalty? <laughs> Always okay. get that question. And we're like, well, we could sell it. Or we could be unique junior that retains it. Because if you imagine 12 to 18 months, if they actually turn that on, we'll have cash flow that most juniors don't have. We'll have, you know, 6 to $8 million a year potentially. US. Well, that would be good in terms of reducing your uh, your dilution. Well, with a yeah. minute left yet, you it's about all the time. Maybe we can squeeze out two minutes. But what about... What about um, your operation in Nova Scotia, too, uh, Patrick? You've got some things going on there, right? Yeah, we're very excited. We have a joint venture partner um, that's going to, as soon as the snow leaves, (laughs) we're looking at May, but uh, they'll start their summer program in Nova Scotia. they got a little bit of geophysics to do, and then they'll be drilling our number one target out there, which is called Bass River. And Bass River is is a copper, gold, lead, zinc, um, silver, target, and it's the largest anomaly in the province of Nova Scotia, right on the, the Cobequits Highlands Fault, which Minotaur Australia believes is IOCG, because there's only so many crustal faults on this planet, and they believe that's that's the, the regional system that's there, and we have ground-proofed a lot of stuff, and we're pretty much drill-ready on that one property. We have three other properties, and again, we're so fortunate from a strategic standpoint, we have nine properties total. We could JV properties as this capital comes back. We could sell properties. We could 
sell our royalty. We could subsidize our royalty. We could, we've had private equity companies come to us say, you know, how about we buy into your company? So there's all these different, all very, very good options that will waive that, you know, benefits our shareholder the most. But good days are coming back. And, and I really believe that uh, we're uniquely positioned with that royalty with a company like Peck in a space like Copper in Chile. And you know that they're turning off their, their, they're running out of board. They don't have a lot of other choices there. So we're very unique and we're very optimistic on ours. And like I said, I don't think the 50% uh, sell-off was warranted from a, from a material standpoint. But... Um, well, well, what I would say to that, Patrick, is that means that people uh, that follow this story have an opportunity to buy the stock now, dirt cheap, so to speak. So um, anything else? Yeah. We, we do have to go now, but uh, what should people be watching for? When might you have some drill results? What would be the drivers that might get this stock way past its old resistance level of 30 to 33 cents? Well, I mean, there, there are some certain uh, triggers. We will we'll probably uh, be finishing concluding our drill program everything in three to four weeks. Um, so obviously we'll come out with news at that point. Doesn't mean we won't come out with news prior. Um, we, we are always talking strategically to other companies, other capital firms, uh, also, uh, potential buyers. So you never know. I mean, there's a lot of interest, a lot of activity, a lot of M&A happening right now. And obviously these companies go after the strongest, most op- opportunistic type companies first that have, the size and scale that these large majors are looking for. So I think we have all those unique uh, items there. Um, all right. You know, all right. Well, 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 we'll have to let it go at that, I'm afraid, Patrick. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, people should go to the website to learn more, right? And that would be, is that ChileanMetals.com or what, what is your website? It is, Jay. Yes. And, and okay. we're open to, uh, to talk to anybody and, and, and respond. And, and we're very, very optimistic and excited about our short future in front of us oh for good reason i think patrick thank you very much for being with us well folks don't go away we are going to be right back with john rubino to talk about why interest rates cannot rise well we'll see about that we'll hear what john has to say it should be very interesting i i know that he thinks they're going to print endless amounts of money which has to be good well not good for us but good for people that own real stuff like copper and gold in the ground uh like uh, like uh, mr Kirkshank's company there so come right back uh, after, the, uh, after the break with John Rubino. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently upgrading and expanding on its resources to produce an economic study in Q3 2017, followed by construction in Q1 2018. Novo enjoys a strong balance sheet and supportive shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRPF, respectively. Dynasert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. 
Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. Arvista Gold's only asset is the Douay Gold Project, which is located in northern Quebec. The Douay Project currently hosts an NI43101 resource of approximately 3 million ounces of gold and is considered to be the largest undeveloped and independent gold project in Quebec. Arvista has significant upside potential to further grow its resources and is currently undergoing an extensive 2017 drill campaign. Arvista Gold trades on the TSXV under the symbol AVA and on the OTCQB under the symbol ARVSF. For more information on Arvista, please visit arvistagold.com. Uranium Energy Corps, NYSE Market, UEC, is a leader in the coming bull market in uranium. With spot uranium up more than 40% in two months, the new bull market is just starting. UEC has the cash, the licensed resources, the permitted processing center, the advanced technology, and the experienced team to lead this market. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting uraniumenergy.com. NYSE Market, UEC. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me a really good friend, John Rubino. Uh, John's been on the show many times before. Um, he is, uh, the, uh, his website is dollarcollapse.com. I urge you to go there because there's countless numbers of very important and interesting articles to read there. Uh, we'll probably touch on a couple of them in our discussion in the next few minutes. Uh, but uh, thanks for joining me again, John. Oh, sure, Jay. Great to be back. Uh, always good to have you with me. Uh, you know, the propaganda that's put out by the Fed has been that interest rates will be rising because the Fed policies have been good for the economy, and finally the economy is back on the mend. Um, I don't buy that one, but nonetheless, that's what we're being told. So rates will rise for a good reason. They'll be rising because the economy is strong, uh, the shortage of money out there, you know, and people have to bid for the money and for the to borrow all the money because, and they're going to borrow and they're going to want to borrow because everything is so good in the economy. Um, but you put out an article recently titled "Maybe the Recovery Wasn't Real After All." Uh, so, John, if we take off our rose-colored glasses that are compliments of the Federal Reserve, what is your view of the economy now? How much on the mend are we? Well. During 2016 and early 2017, we did get a lot of good top-line numbers. But I, I think a lot of that is attributed to the fact that we borrowed a huge amount of money in 2016. You know, when, when there's a presidential election, generally what happens is the federal government steps up its spending, usually by borrowing more money and then spending it, in order to get its people reelected or elected. And in this case, the Obama administration went all out to get Hillary elected, borrowed a ton of money and spent it. And so we got a little pop in growth there. But overall, 
Um, and, you know, the economy just hasn't been that strong throughout this entire recovery. And now it seems to be starting to roll over. You know, manufacturing numbers just came out that were very weak. Housing starts are weak. Home sales are weak. And um, on and on. Consumer spending, retail sales. So so it does kind of look like we're going back to the situation that we were in at the beginning of 2016, where the, the numbers really don't justify rising interest rates, at least don't justify the Fed initiating higher interest rates at the short end of the, the yield curve. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know, because we, we really, you know, we've taken on so much debt over the last 30 years and over, especially over the last 10 years, and, and excessive debt is deflationary. It's very hard to grow when you already owe too much money, whether right. you're a, an individual or a country. And that's our situation. So the governments of the world are leaning against this with extremely easy money, you know, lots of currency creation, extremely high government spending, uh, you know, of which China is a really interesting example. Their government spending went up by um, 25% in the last year. (laughs) (laughs) And and their their credit creation is, is running at record levels right now. So you're seeing the governments of the world attempt to generate organic growth. In other words, to to prime the pump to the point where the economy grows at a rate um, that doesn't require excessive government borrowing and spending. And, and so far, it doesn't seem to be working. You know, mm-hmm. it looked at, it looked like in, in 2016 that it might have been working, but really all that was was just a ton of new borrowing and spending. Uh, and so it, if it doesn't work, that creates some really interesting problems for the, the world's governments and central banks, which I, I guess we can go on to talk about here if you want. Yeah, for sure. Well, before we get to that, though, I, I'm just looking at one of your articles that you put out, the one I just referred to, maybe the recovery wasn't real after all. And folks, you can go to dollarcollapse.com to read about this article and many others that are there. But, you know, the Atlanta Fed, John, has been out in front and been so right about their predictions about the growth of the economy, at least over the last year or so. And they are really looking at a sub-1% growth right now, right? Yeah. Well, in in the article that I posted uh, a couple of weeks back, they were looking at like 0.9% growth. Right. Mm -hmm. And now that's down to about 0.5%. So it's slowed down in the meantime. Yeah, every every new piece of data that comes in causes the Atlanta Fed to um, assume that the first quarter was even weaker than they thought it was. And, uh, you know, remember, their estimate for first quarter growth was almost 3.5% as recently as February. And since that time, it has just cratered. It's fallen off the table. So, and... The other economists out there who who usually trail the Atlanta Fed in the you know the decrease in GDP estimates, they're heading down that way too. So um, everybody is starting to assume that first quarter GDP was much much weaker than they thought it was going to be as recently as a few months ago. So the question then becomes: Is this a trend? You know, is this going to continue going forward, or was it just a, a little downward blip in an otherwise healthily growing system. And mm-hmm. again, you know, all the debt that's out there is so deflationary and such a hindrance to growth that mm-hmm. it's completely possible that first quarter growth being as weak as it is, is actually going to set the uh, the tone for the rest of the year. We'll have to wait and see, but um, it's totally looking like that based on a lot of the other numbers coming out. You know, if yeah. manufacturing is weak, home building is, is rolling over. Mm-hmm. And retail sales are down. 
Mm -hmm. then where do you get growth? And it's not clear where it comes from at this point. Yeah, I heard the auto industry is in, uh, in some trouble as well um, in, in many ways. So, well, John, I have to wonder, you know, then what does this mean for the yield curve? If, you know, if the Fed on the one hand is trying to talk the economy up, trying to make everybody believe that uh, growth is strong, and yet it just, it just isn't, or it doesn't look like it is for sure, and it looks like it, as you suggest, that we could be in a, a, a downward trend here, um, what are they to do? What what is I mean, do they, they they can't really go out and say, well, we're just going to run the printing presses and we're going to generate growth that way because if they did that, um, you know, it, it would lose confidence. People would lose confidence in the system, right? They have to believe that the economy is strong, or else people will start to start to doubt the the policymakers and their credibility. Well, yeah, you know, a fiat currency system runs on the confidence of the people buying and selling stuff in the ability of the government to run the economy correctly. And if, if the government fails to do that, then people pull in their horns, financially speaking, and the um, the system falls apart because there, there are vastly more claims on resources out there than there are resources to cover those claims in a, in a fractional reserve banking system. So the system can collapse very easily. And that's the thing that these guys are worried about now, because if if it becomes clear that the government is out of tools, you know, that they've got nothing left to throw at this thing and the economy is slowing down despite the fact that they've already, um, you know, fired all their weapons in the last few years, then the markets are liable to behave accordingly, which is to say that, you know, risk on, in other words, people buying stocks and bonds and real estate becomes risk off. People going to cash and precious metals and, and uh, other hard assets that governments can't inflate away. And the system from a Keynesian standpoint grinds to a halt then. <laughs> and then all this debt starts to blow up and you get a 1930s style depression. That's what these guys are worried about. And they're, they're right to worry. With the amount of debt that we've taken on over the past 30 years, um, some kind of a deflationary collapse is completely possible. You know, we owe way more now than we owed in 1929, which was yeah. the last time everything fell apart. Yeah. Uh, and we, we, frankly, we owe orders of magnitude more than we owed in 1929, if you count all the stuff now that's not called debt as yes. debt, you know, unfunded yeah. liabilities and and uh, the, the pension stuff that we've got going on and derivatives. All of these things are obligations, that requires somebody to pay something, which is the definition of debt. And if you add all that up, we owe three or four times more now than we, we owed. Yeah, in that relation to the size of the economy. So in the depression. We're, yeah, we're grossly over leveraged and extremely fragile because of that. So, John, speaking of the debt, uh, another article that you wrote that people can read at dollarcollapse.com, soaring global debt sets stage for unprecedented private deleveraging. As you're saying, debt is deflationary. It's deleveraging. It means the system has to go in reverse. Um, and, and I'd like to just read here um, a, a bit of a quote from that article. You said, um, you said, pointing to an explosive debt situation, you stated, and I quote, these numbers are astounding. Emerging market debt was 7.4 trillion in 1996 and today it's 55 trillion. US and UK government debt has doubled from already historically high levels since 2006. You were just talking about off balance sheet stuff in addition to that of course that you were just saying. You went on to say in your article and there is no end in sight. Japan just passed a record high government budget 35% of which will be borrowed. 
The uh, U.S. added $1.3 trillion to its federal debt in 2016 and is debating massive increases in defense and infrastructure spending now. China's corporate debt alone, which you talked about a little bit ago, exceeds 170% of GDP, which leads to three inescapable conclusions. One, interest rates can never rise because rolling over this much debt at historically normal rates would blow up the budgets of both the developed and developing worlds. Two, The only situation, if you can call it that, is massive currency devaluation to make these debts manageable. Three, since the debt binge has apparently gone parabolic, the reckoning is fairly close at hand. 2018 might be one for the history books, end of quote. So, John, you're saying interest rates can never rise because rolling over this much debt, historical rates, will blow things up. But what you're saying is uh, that statement suggests then that the policymakers have control of interest rates, right? Um, Yeah. Well, they have historically had control of interest rates, and they hope they do going forward. (laughs) And they're they're terrified um, that they might not. And and that's a legitimate fear because the markets can just spin out of control at this point. You know what 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 will probably happen going forward? Because we we've already learned the lesson that austerity does not work in a highly leveraged system. Because if if you try to scale back government spending and hope the private sector um, takes over for you if you're an over indebted government, what you get is Greece. You know the private sector will just collapse under the weight of all its debts if you're not continually feeding it with new credit. Right. So the the governments of the world seem to have come to that conclusion that they have no choice but just to ramp it up. You know to to create new currency and borrow new money and spend it all and and just hope for the best going forward, um, which is a prescription for an out of control credit bubble, which you know I think by a lot of standards we've got right now. If um, if negative interest rates on government debt isn't a sign of a, a credit bubble, then not much else is. But you've got a lot of others too. You know, stocks are at record levels. Um, you're seeing real estate prices just go crazy in a lot of parts of the world. You know, Canada, yeah. Toronto, Canada saw its um, housing prices jump by almost 25% year over year in the last 12 mm. months. That's crazy. Wow. You know, that's completely unsustainable. Um, but that's because the money that they're creating out there, the governments of the world, it has to go somewhere. So it goes into you know, the hottest asset classes. Uh, and eventually it blows up those hot asset classes. So what we're seeing around the world is the early stages of, of something like a credit bubble bursting. You know, China had two big companies just um, really collapse in the, the last month. You know, their, their biggest dairy company, which they're defining as too big to fail and looking at bailing it out. Mm-hmm. And then the world's biggest aluminum producer. They, they both financially blew up in just the last month or so. And that's the kind of thing that happens at the peak of credit bubbles, when you get big companies starting to blow up and then governments having to bail them out with newly created currency, which makes the situation even worse, and and, and until it just all falls apart. So it, there's no way to know when the it all falls apart day happens. But it certainly feels like we're in that territory, you know, in, in a place where some external shock 
could send the system over a cliff. And, yeah. you know, Jay, we've got a lot of potential external shocks out there now oh, based boy. on the political world. And, oh, and my situation. goodness. Oh, do we ever. Well, yeah. John, you know, you mentioned a, a bit ago that the fiat currencies are a confidence game. They're a con game, if you will. And and which leads me to my next question. We um, I, I passed this on to you because I wanted your comments on it. Who is funding the treasuries? You know, if... if um, at these low rates, who wants to own the darn things? Who wants to? Why would you want to own them when they're negative real rates of interest they're paying you? And we have, uh, over the last two years, 2015, 2016, we've seen the Chinese, well, not only the Chinese, net reduction of treasury holdings by 12% or something like that. The Social Security Trust Fund is, is buy, still buying treasuries, but a lot less because there's fewer people paying in now. The, the labor market isn't all that good. And there's a lot of us old guys that are starting to pull it out. And so they don't have as much to buy treasuries with. And we know the quantitative easing fell away, supposedly. Uh, and so uh, the author of this letter, uh, his name is Chris Hamilton. Uh, this, uh, this piece that actually people can, uh, there's a link to it from miningstocks.com if they want to go and read his article titled, uh, if, the treasury sells, if the Fed sells treasuries, who will be buying? Answer, other Seriously, other. Well, so the Fed is suggesting, that, in fact, I l- was looking at the numbers, more than ever before, domestic buyers are buying U.S. treasuries because these other sources are buying, and, and by that, they're not, including, uh, they're not including the Social Security Trust Fund. But there's this um, domestic buyers more than ever since the beginning of our country, what the, what the Treasury calls domestic buyers, but they don't explain who those domestic buyers are, there's about half of the domestic purchases of treasuries that they label as other. And I mean, it's like 700, in the last two years, 745 billion worth in 15, 2015, 2016. The next largest is mutual funds with 497 billion. Then you have some smaller ones like banks, 137 uh, billion. You've got uh, private investors, whatever that is, insurance a little bit, uh, state and local, 5 billion. I mean, it's nothing. And so John, I'm wondering who these other who these other buyers could be. I mean, it's a huge chunk of treasury buying, and if they, why wouldn't they want us to know who the other is? <laughs> well, they don't want us to know a lot of things, Jay. Um, and uh, here's what's going to happen: a, a couple of decades from now, historians are finally going to get their hands on the actual documentation for all this stuff, and they're going to bring in uh, forensic accountants to dig into this stuff. And and the stuff they're going to find will be just hair raising, you know, about uh, the, the the lies that are being told right now. Um, and in the meantime. You and I right now, and, and the other people who actually care about this stuff, which is, I, I'm afraid, just a handful of people in the world, but um, we're kind of stuck with incomplete information. We can't know this because they're hiding it on balance sheets that aren't completely explained. And the Belgium thing of a couple of years ago, when Belgium was buying you know, more than their GDP worth of treasury right. bonds, they were, they were right. just a conduit for China at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time around, obviously, this other category is going to turn out to be just some intermediary uh, that's buying huge amounts of treasury bonds for some big central bank, probably, that is creating currency out of thin air in order to buy these bonds. Which means that the whole bond thing is just an illusion, because what we've got now is governments spending whatever they feel like, and then financing themselves by creating a lot of new currency. 
and you know issuing bonds and then buying the bonds back is just this this little kind of shell game that goes on in the middle to hide the fact that governments are financing themselves with newly printed currency which is historically the final stage in the destruction of a monetary system right when you start right. self-financing with uh, newly created currency monetizing your government in other words uh, yeah. that usually precedes a currency collapse. So that's where we are, you know. All right, and a currency collapse. Uh, currency yeah. collapse, John. We're just about out of time. But that one, uh, that that purchase of of currency is really what's leading us. Nut- I mean, this is your conclusion was they have to debase the currency. We're going to see currency values declining dramatically, much more than they have already, and they've already declined dramatically. So I guess gold and silver is is the most logical place to go to, other tangibles that you have to have. Uh, I want to thank you very much, John, for for helping us understand this. And I want to tell people to go to dollarcollapse.com. Here's one you got to read, and I haven't read it entirely yet, but I just saw the headlines, and I've got to get a hold of this one. Don't hide your gold coins where your thermostat can see. John, you wrote that. Uh, 30 seconds, comment on that? Well, yeah, technology is making it possible for other people to spy on us everywhere. You know, smart houses involve lots of sensors and things like that that can watch us and tell what we're doing. TV sets and and increasingly refrigerators and washing machines and stuff like that. So if you're going to be hiding precious metals at home, you now need to be very careful about your smart house paying attention to what you're doing. If somebody's sending a signal out into the world... Um, that involves where you're hiding these gold coins you just bought, you're not safe anymore. So you got to be extra careful about the where you store it part of the um, precious metals equation. Okay, thank you, John, very much. We are out of time. Thank you for that. DollarCollapse.com, folks, go there, read John's articles. They're really fascinating and important. That's all the time we have this week. Next week, Peter Granich will be my guest. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Dynasert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40% increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. Chilean Metals is a Canadian junior exploration company focusing on high-potential copper, gold prospects in Chile and Canada. Chilean Metals' Zulima property is a Candelaria-like prospect, one of the largest mines in the world. The company has begun its drill program in Chile on its Zulima property and should be completed by the end of February. We also own a 3% royalty on future production on Tech Resources Copa Query property, potentially worth millions of dollars annually. This is the time to invest in Chilean metals, a discovery story with a hedge. Traded TSX Venture under symbol CMX. 
Arvista Gold's only asset is the Douay Gold Project, which is located in northern Quebec. The Douay Project currently hosts an NI43101 resource of approximately 3 million ounces of gold and is considered to be the largest undeveloped and independent gold project in Quebec. Arvista has significant upside potential to further grow its resources and is currently undergoing an extensive 2017 drill campaign. Arvista Gold trades on the TSXV under the symbol AVA and on the OTCQB under the symbol ARVSF. For more information on Arvista, please visit arvistagold.com. TriMetals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company exploring and developing its near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. TriMetals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a gold resource with a robust preliminary economic assessment. TriMetals believes that with further drilling, there is a significant potential to discover 3 to 5 million ounces of gold at Gold Springs. TriMetals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively, and its website is trimetalsmining.com.